0: On November 15th, 2019, a couple months before the pandemic started, I drove to the far southeastern corner of California. I was headed toward El Centro. I followed Route 8 as it wound between these incredible rocky hills and then down into a flat patchwork of desert scrub mixed with fields of deep green crops. In this episode, we're going to explore how climate change is predicted to affect people's lives in California's desert southeast. You're listening to Future Imperfect. I'm your host, Shane Carter. My guides for this region were two high school students who met me at the local library.
1: My name is Angela. i Angela Ochoa. I live in El Centro, and I'm 18 years
2: old. My name is Elias Mendiola. I'm 17 years old, and I live in Calexico, California.
1: I wanted to hear from them
0: about life in this place, and then use what they shared to get a better understanding of how climate change may affect the day-to-day lives of people in this region. According to California's fourth climate change assessment, El Centro is located in an area called the Inland Deserts region. Inland deserts includes all of Imperial County, plus the desert areas of Riverside and San Bernardino counties, and the lands of 12 different tribal nations. Right now, it's home to about a million people, which is only 2.5% of California's total population. Native peoples have occupied the area around El Centro for at least 10,000 years. Research suggests that the linguistic ancestors of today's Kumie and Cocopa peoples migrated into the area around 3,000 B.C., while the ancestral Cahuilla settled to the north slightly later. Or, to put that a little bit differently, ancestral Kumie, Cocopa, and Cahuilla communities were already settled in this area by the time the Egyptians built the Great Pyramid at Giza. And their descendants are still living here today. The towns of El Centro and its slightly southern neighbor, Calexico, were both incorporated in 1908, a little over a hundred years ago. Just to put things in chronological perspective. I started out by asking Elias and Angela how each of them would describe their hometowns.
1: I'd describe it as small. In Spanish it would be like pueblito, like almost everyone knows each other, but not really. So it's really nice because everything's really far away. But if you go walking, it's not that far and you end up knowing everybody as time goes by, like I've been living here for a year and a half. So it's really nice. How would you describe um, Calexico? I would describe Calexico as
2: a small border border town. Um really small town with really nice people actually, full of crops and all. It's kind of neat cuz um I used to study in Calexico before I came here to El Centro. And a bunch of my teachers lived close to me, so I could just like go walk and ask them like stuff about homework or if I forgot something let's say, uh, an assignment, I would just go and be like, hey, can I turn it in today? Like, right now? <laughs> because I forgot to turn it in, like, during school hours. And they would be like, yeah, sure. But, but yeah, it's nice to live, like, in a small town since, you know, you have, like, everyone closer to you. Uh, most of my, my classmates, though, they would live in Mexico, across the border. But, uh, I had some classmates that lived here as well, so it would be nice.
0: Oh, so you mean some of your classmates cross the border every day to go to school?
2: Yeah. They would usually cross every day. They would walk, or their parents would bring in by car, but yeah, most of them would cross every day. That sounds complicated. Well yeah, I I used to cross every day as well, uh, before I moved here in ninth grade to Calexico. And it wasn't that hard actually. It's I know it sounds hard, but it's just like waking up every day early to like go to to the line and be like waiting for almost an hour, an hour and a half before crossing and then walking to school. Did you also do that or were you always here? Yeah,
1: for like a year in middle school too, well, around eighth grade, I used to go to Calexico to a middle school and I had to cross every day and I had to wake up at 5 a.m. and be in the border by 6 so I can be crossing around 6.37 and then be at school around 8 so it was it was a journey but it was like it was fun because you get to like meet people and you run into friends and then like you know like it's the border and people are like in the line so a lot of drama happens with like the senoras that are like they want to get in the line of the students and blah 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 so it was really funny sometimes and you get to meet like the officers that you see every morning like we used to know this one officer that would always get on our side, technically, because we were in the line of students. So it was really nice. We would chat with him and everything. It was really funny.
0: First, of course, this was Native land. And then Spain conquered it. And then it became independent Mexico. And then up until 1848, with the end of the U.S.-Mexican War, all of modern California was part of Mexico. For most of the time since 1848, despite what you might think from watching the news, there has actually been almost no fencing of any kind separating the countries. Even as recently as 2005, only 75 miles of the 2,000-mile border was separated by an actual barrier, although people moving back and forth was already a contentious issue in the early 1900s. One of those early barriers was built in Elias's town, In 1919, a section of chain-link fence was erected to separate the U.S. city of Calexico from the Mexican city of Mexicali. In the years since Angela and Elias were born, the U.S. has added over 600 more miles to that barrier between the countries. In practice, though, people in border communities often live their lives on both sides of the border, crossing back and forth for work, school, shopping, and to visit family and friends.
2: Most of the students in my school were mexican americans and their parents wanted like they wanted like a good future for their kids so they send their kids to school in the u.s and since my school was just like a couple of feet across the border it was like really really close to the border we could actually see the the border fence and we we sometimes like saw people jumping across and they were running to our school so it was like it was crazy but uh I think it's mostly because the parents wanted, like, they want their children to have a good future. So they send them over here, and the only way it's just like cross the border every day. So they would live in Mexico, which is cheaper, way cheaper, and they would send their kids to school here in the U.S.
0: As a person who's lived on both sides of the border, Angela has thoughts about immigration more generally.
1: So I think it all depends on not judging the people that are coming to wherever you're living, just by what you've heard or by what you think and just actually trying to help if something bad happens it's not your fault for trusting them it's theirs for being the way they are it's not on you it's on them so i think it's on how we carry the situation if we tried everything we could to like welcome them and help them and still carry on with what we're doing then fine if they are like if the people migrating or whoever it is if they're pulling, your, if they're pulling your leg or not being a nice person, that doesn't mean that all of them are like that. That means that bad things happen. So you're gonna run into bad people, and that happens everywhere, even with people who are not migrants, even with people around you. But we should also try to approach it in a more, a little bit more of a gentle way. I'm not saying just let them in completely. I'm saying just try to approach it more gently. You might
0: be wondering right now what this daily back and forth across the border has to do with climate change in California. Why are we suddenly talking about immigration? First of all, for as long as humans have existed, one of the main ways we've responded to environmental change has been migration. If our food resources moved, if the weather got warmer or cooler or drier or wetter, our distant and our recent ancestors often responded by moving to a better place. With today's climate change, though, this age-old solution is running up against modern ideas about borders and citizenship. Today, across the world, the UN Refugee Agency estimates that 20 million people migrate each year in response to extreme weather events that destroy their homes, resources, infrastructure in their countries, and their economies. In fact, migration is one of the biggest anticipated effects of climate change. I went to El Centro, hoping to get a local understanding of climate change. And then in the first five minutes, Angela and Elias taught me that their everyday local experiences as school children intersected with this global issue. Most of the millions of cross-border trips at Calexico each year aren't long-term migrants. They're just people going about their daily business. As I listened to Angela and Elias talk, though, I wondered how the U.S. is going to respond to the increasing numbers of climate-related migrants seeking to cross the border. Will those changes affect the day-to-day lives of people living and working in those communities? It's hard to imagine that they won't. My collaborator on this podcast project was Nancy Freitas. She's a graduate student studying climate science at UC Berkeley. She listened to my interviews with young people, and then we discussed them together. I brought my perspective from teaching history and social studies, and she brought a scientist's view. If you want to learn more about Nancy and her work, you should listen to the episode called What is Climate Change? When she listened to our conversation, Nancy also noted the climate migration connection. And one quick note, Angela, wherever you are out there, I mistitled the audio file and I told Nancy your name was Angelica. I am so sorry for messing
3: that up. We are logistically not set up as a globe um, for millions of climate refugees and migrants to be moving in the next 50 to 100 years, but we know that that's going to be a reality. Um, And Angelica was making a great point that not only are we not logistically set up, but we, um, people hold a lot of preconceptions about who immigrants are and who they should be. Um, And she was very, Um, intentional about saying that we should be, you know, welcoming people with open arms and not judging them. Um, And we need to work on issues of racism in order to be able to, uh, you know, deal with mass migration that's going to be happening. So
0: there's one example of how global responses to climate change may affect border communities in this region, although we don't know exactly how those changes in migration will play out. But what about more direct local effects? For that, the best place to start is with the landscape itself. This part of the state contains huge amounts of federally protected lands, like Joshua Tree National Park, and then urban areas like Palm Springs and El Centro, and then also extensive agricultural land, producing everything from lettuce to alfalfa for dairy cows to cattle for meat. And then more recently, it has also become the site of massive solar arrays to produce renewable energy. If you haven't seen one before, you might have a hard time imagining just how big they are. So, for example, at the Mount Signal Solar Project in Calexico, solar panels cover 801 hectares of land, which is the equivalent of about 2,000 football fields. And then those panels power 72,000 homes in San Diego. These plants are a major part of California's fight against climate change, but they also may disrupt fragile desert ecosystems. Across the region, natural spaces, agricultural lands, water engineering projects, and then these high-tech solar farms exist side by side with one another.
2: The only thing you see around, it's like miles and miles and miles of sand um, and desert plants, which is not not ugly. It's actually pretty. Um, I've seen people that come from Denver, Colorado, here to the to the valley, and the first time they get here, They imagine the Imperial Valley as like a really green area full of, uh, you know, plants and vegetation and they get here and there's a big desert they're like, whoa, I didn't picture this.
1: The agriculture, it's really, it's really cool how out of like seeing so much sand and so much desert out of nowhere, there's like so many crops and like people planting so many green, so many green areas around you and it's really nice.
0: You can tell Elias and Angela both find their home beautiful. Nancy explained more about the desert ecosystem.
3: When we think about these deserts, we think that they are super sparse and that there's very little going on in the landscape, but they're actually areas of very high biodiversity, especially given their size um, and their aridity. It's pretty incredible how many plants and animals exist um, on this landscape. And... um, A lot of them are living in these very narrow ecological niches where they might have to burrow into sand dunes during the middle of the summer to survive, or they have to seek out specific um, climate refugia to, you know, continue existing. Um, And as we think about climate change impacting these areas, those environments may become more and more limited unless we, again you know, put a lot of effort into conserving them. It would be fair to say that for Elias, a changing
0: desert ecosystem would be a personal loss, though we didn't talk about it in those terms. I asked him to tell me about his favorite place, and he described a part of the nearby Anzo Baraga State Park.
2: And it's a really nice place because it's so, it's it's so quiet. There's not a lot of people there, and there's this, um, there's this like a little, how can I call it? We are we live in a hole here in the valley. It's basically like a hole. There's mountains surrounding us. Uh, but that place, it's even deeper. You go even deeper. Um, and there's not a ton of people there. There's usually people who live there already. And there's this, there's this, like, path you can walk. It's about 10 miles long. And you go out to, like, the mountains. Uh, and there's this section called the Shoya Valley, which is, like, a place full of Choyas. I really like that place because... Uh, it's just how it's just really, really weird. You're walking to like around the mountains. then you see this mini valley full of joyas. then you walked a little bit like forward. then you see like a river stream. so it's uh, it's 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 cool,
0: of course, the desert environment also affects day-to-day life, not just recreation. On a typical day back before the pandemic, Anhela would spend the day at school
1: and then. I go get my nephew, so that's like a 20-minute walk, and then 10 minutes back home. And after that, I literally don't go out because it's hot. It's very hot outside, and more and more specifically in this part of California, it's really, really hot. So there's no wish for me to go outside and burn my existence. So, <laughs> and in the summer, even less. I stay home I st- as much as I can. Because when you, okay, so if you're going to go out, it's usually on the car and our car doesn't have like air con. And even if it did, the moment you enter the car, it's a sauna, sauna and leather seats, leather seats. It's horrible. So we avoid going out as much as we can when it's really hot outside. We stayed in the house, well in the apartment, and it's like we have the AC on for as long as we can.
0: In the summers, Elias works for his dad, who has his own business. It's hard manual labor
2: a typical summer day would be just like working with my dad from like 6 am to 12 or 1 pm because then it gets really hot and then we get like we get to my house i take a shower because i'm like sweating buckets uh then i just like put on some shorts and like a a shirt like a really cool shirt and i just turn on all the fans i can my ac and just like playing video games until it's like 8 p.m. Then I can go out and play a little bit. Um, Sometimes I skate or sometimes I just play in the park which is close to my house. Uh, But uh, yeah, I have to wait till it's like 9 p.m. or 8 p.m. because then I'll I'll die outside. Can you give me um, like an actual temperature that you're talking about? I think like two summers ago we had like the hottest temperature recorded here in the valley which was like almost 122 and that was like that was fine with us we just like lived through that day yeah it's just like a normal hot day but yeah usually in summer is the temperature goes up like to like the hundreds 110s um and if it's like a really nice day it'll be like 99.
0: scientists predict that climate change will significantly change temperatures here
3: this area of California is one of the hottest areas in the United States. Um, and like the hottest average temperatures in the summer are in the 100s easily. Um, and then if you add in climate projections for the next 80 years, those temperatures are expected to increase by up to like, it was anywhere between eight and 14 degrees at the maximum. Um, which is kind of unbelievable to think about, like an environment that you're living in being over 130 degrees. I looked up that high temperature Elias mentioned,
0: and I found it was on July 24th, 2018. In Imperial, California, 10 minutes up the road from El Centro, they recorded a temperature of 121 degrees that day. Some residents also reported rain, although no official measurements confirmed that. If they had, it would have been a world record for the hottest rainfall ever recorded. It's not just that scientists predict we'll be setting new heat records. They also say we can expect more of these hot days. Right now, Angela and Elias experience on average about 10 days a year when the temperature climbs over 112 degrees. By 2100, if we don't do much to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, climate models are projecting over 80 days above 112 degrees each year. Here's Nancy
3: again. And so, and temperature increase has a lot of implications for, you know, water and evaporation of water from the surface. Um, it has a lot of implications for uh, agriculture, which um, where where these two students live um, is a very important piece of their economy and, of course, it has a lot of implications for human health in the region. Inland Desert's economy is based on agriculture, but
0: also tourism, construction, warehousing and distribution centers, and then also those solar farms I mentioned. Unemployment here is higher than anywhere else in the state, partly because so much of the employment is seasonal, and about one in four people live in poverty. Using information from the state climate change assessment, Nancy and I could get a broad sense of the ways this region will be affected by increasing heat. But Elias and Angela, on the other hand, understand the economy from the standpoint of people who live it and experience it personally.
2: You have a, a lot of people, like a lot of immigrants coming here to like work in the fields. But, well, you have a ton, actually. Usually the line uh, in the border, when it's around 5 a.m., 5 it's really long and it's just people going to the fields to work. Um, and you sometimes see like students that drop out of high school working there. But yeah, mostly the work here, I will say it's agriculture, but then you have like small jobs like retail employee, um, cashiers, and stuff like that. And since it's a really small town like El Center and Calexico, usually the people who live there already take those jobs which leaves uh, the rest of like the population having to work somewhere else, finding jobs like outside the, the valley, or even working in Mexico and then coming back. Most of the jobs here, it's just agriculture.
0: You're making a face like you feel like the jobs are not a good option.
1: The, the jobs are good, but I do feel bad sometimes for the people who work in like the agriculture area because I've had friends like he says that high school dropouts or maybe even not even high school dropouts, just people that really need money right now sign up to like be working on the fields. And it's a hard job. Like I would never wish that to anyone unless you really need it because it's harder than people think like they get one of my friends one time literally passed out in the middle of the fields while working. From heat or sunstroke? From heat.
0: The increase in heat is going to require adaptations in all areas of agriculture, meaning water availability, which foods can be grown and worker safety. I want to focus on the human experience of living and working in the inland deserts region as our climate shifts. And for that, you need to understand how high heat affects your body. So, you probably already know that your body works to maintain an internal temperature of about 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. As you burn calories, your muscle movements constantly generate heat. But if you're in a cool space, say 70 degrees, your body can easily shed that extra heat. As the temperature around you gets closer to your body temperature, it gets harder to stay cool. So your body sends more blood to the vessels closest to your skin, which is why your skin sometimes looks red when you're hot. You also sweat, and as the sweat evaporates off your skin, it cools you down. And you can choose to stop moving around so your muscles don't generate extra heat. But what happens if you can't sweat enough to cool off? Or you're dehydrated and you can't sweat anymore? Or it's so humid that your sweat barely evaporates? or? What if your job requires you to keep using your muscles so you're continually generating lots of extra body heat? In that case, your heart keeps trying to cool you down by pumping blood away from your internal organs and out toward your extremities. And this is where the real danger begins. You may get dizzy and disoriented. If it gets really bad, you may get heat stroke, which can lead to seizures, loss of consciousness, even permanent brain damage. Your heart rate increases, and especially if you already have heart disease, you can have a heart attack from the strain. Your kidneys, your liver, and your intestines can suffer damage. Some people die immediately from severe heat stroke. But also, a study of a heat wave in Chicago in the 90s showed that some people survive the initial heat stroke and then die in the next few months from damage they sustained. Heat stroke can affect anyone, although some people are at greater risk than others. People who are very young or very old are in extra danger, for example. So are people who are overweight or who have uncontrolled diabetes or high blood pressure. The only way to survive extreme heat is to drink a lot of water and to move your body into a place that is cool enough for you to shed that heat. What that means is that on an increasing number of days, outdoor manual labor under the hot sun is going to be literally impossible for human beings. So, is the situation hopeless? No, but some things in the region will undoubtedly be harder in the future, especially for workers. For example, some California harvests already take place at night when temperatures are lower. This practice might become more common. That protects workers from the effects of heat, but night harvests come with other dangers that will also need to be addressed. At the neighborhood and household level, we have better options. We can increase our use of trees and creative building methods to keep homes cooler. We can also improve our planning for heat waves. We need to make sure that our power grid is as reliable as possible. And we need to have easily accessible air-conditioned cooling centers for people who can't afford air conditioning or whose power goes out. Big picture, this is why we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions as much as possible and as fast as possible. Lower CO2 levels mean less extreme climate change, and in the inland deserts region, this will help limit the number and the intensity of future heat waves. So, that's heat. Another way climate change will affect this region has to do with water.
2: We hardly get any rain here in the valley. It's probably like, in a school year, you have like three or four times when it rains. and it's just, like, fun, because uh, in my old school, uh, we used to, like, go outside in, like, lunchtime and play in the puddles and, and get all wet. And then c- go inside the classrooms and the teachers being all mad because they're, like, you're messing with my desk. <laughs> so, yeah, it'll be fun. And when it rains, it it's all crazy. It's all messy. People get mad. They're, they're like, oh, no, I can't go out because it's raining. So yeah, it's it's like a chaos, but it's a fun, a fun chaos.
1: It's a good and bad situation, I would say, because we do like it in the moment it's happening. But the next day or after it stops, it gets extremely suffocated. It's very suffocated outside because the water is like evaporating really extremely quickly. Like I could like at the start, of, if in the morning it was raining and I saw puddles and I saw puddles during lunchtime, by the time I go out of school, they're gone. So that's how hot it gets. <laughs> So it's really hard to deal with the suffocation of well with the outcome of the rain. So it's a it's good because it's fun in the moment, but it's really hard to deal with it after it stops.
0: Elias also remembered the height of the drought in 2015-2016.
2: And they were talking about like how California was in need of water and uh, and um how a lot of, of cattle was dying for it and how regulations on water were, like, going to start going all over California. And, yeah, that happened eventually. Like, they started, they started like, charging more for the water, a lot more. And it, that's still, like, to the date. The water here in California is real expensive.
0: This region imports almost all its water from the Colorado River. But by the year 2050, evaporation from increased heat is expected to reduce the river flow by 20 to 30 percent. Then changing precipitation in the Rocky Mountains, where the river comes out of, will decrease the flow of the river even more. This means that local cities and water districts are going to need to get creative. That means water conservation, water recycling, capturing storm runoff, and cooperation between water agencies. The state climate change assessment also predicts changes to
3: rainfall. Nancy explains. This area is super dry and receives a very variable amount of rainfall within the year. Year to year, that rainfall is pretty low. So it's like five. I think they were saying in one of the climate assessment reports that it's about five inches per year, which is it's like very different than other regions of California. Summer months um, bring monsoon rain. And that number is expected to decrease for summer months and then is expected to increase potentially in winter months. Um, So the intensity of rainstorms might increase, although precipitation, because it's variable, may just become more variable. And we're not quite sure what that will look like. Let's unpack this. Imagine that between 1950 and the year 2000,
0: El Centro got a total of 250 inches of rain. If we divide that 250 inches across 50 years, we'd say that on average, the town gets five inches of rain per year. That's what that average means. But obviously, that does not mean they get five inches every year. Or even that neighboring Calexico gets exactly the same amount of rain as El Centro. Instead, as Nancy also explained, rainfall is extremely variable from one place to another and from one year to another. In some years, this region only had one and a half inches of rain during the entire year. In other years, it got over 10 inches. As we move closer to 2100, scientists are predicting more of this variability. More intense droughts, but then bigger storms when they do come. The average rainfall is predicted to stay about the same, but from month to month and year to year, it will fluctuate even more than it does already. This means we can expect more drought, like Elias described. It will also increase the chances of flash floods that can damage roads and bridges and endanger people. This does not have to turn into a crisis, but we do need to actively plan for it. Some cities are already factoring climate change projections into their infrastructure planning. And here's another place for you to think about your own future. Most of us really only notice roads, bridges, and storm drains when they stop working. But if you're someone who gets excited about a nicely built bridge, or you're interested in new construction methods, well, here's a way for you to follow that passion and help address climate change at the same time. Most of the young people I interviewed told me that they don't learn about these kinds of local details in school or when they look at climate change stuff online,
1: but they are curious. I don't know exactly how it's going to affect like the area I'm living in, for example, Hero Central. I don't know exactly who I was going to affect it except for the agriculture because I know it affects it a lot, but I don't know exactly how. And I know that in my future it will affect it and something will change. Probably something small, but when I recall, for example, back to this moment, I'm going to be like, whoa, okay, that's weird. Like, that changed. That's weird. Probably this is why. Elias thinks about this, too.
2: Well, I mean, I've hurt my dad a lot of times. We drive by, like, the area, like El Centro, or even our way to, like, San Diego, we drive by like the mountains and stuff like that and i've heard them say i remember when this area used to be like gr- greener we used to have like a well my parents they lived in that time in, like in the 80s 70s they used to have like this big, really big lake in Mekali called la laguna salada which was like um it was caused by like the Colorado River flooding, and then like the uh the US Trying like get rid of all of the water, so they opened like the canal, and all of the water came to like this place in Mexico called La Laguna Salada, and people thought like it'll stay there forever, but in a matter of like three years, it just evaporated. Uh, we also have the Salton Sea right here, which is also caused by the Colorado River flooding. It wasn't supposed to be there, but they say like it's drying really rapidly, and that's. And that's bad, because it has a lot of, like, toxicity level in the water, and if it dries, then the toxicity level would stay in the sand, the sand will blow up, and it'll affect the crops we're eating, so I think, like, as in my future, here in the valley, or actually anywhere go, um, I think that if my dad tells me that the earth used to be greener, well, like, I think that and I don't, I would, like, tell people the same thing like that tells me. I remember this place used to be, like, you know, really green, or this place used to have water in it, or this place. So, yeah.
0: If you drive about 30 minutes north from El Centro, you reach the lake Elias described, the Salton Sea. The Salton Sea formed in 1905. Water breached a canal. That was heading from the Colorado River into the Imperial Valley, and for 18 months it poured into the area forming this lake. The lake's still there now because agricultural runoff has been intentionally channeled into it for decades. But, as Elias noted, this meant that it washed pollutants into the lake, including heavy metals and pesticides like DDT. So the current Salton Sea is the result of human intervention, But looking back over tens of thousands of years, geologists can see that the area was actually a lake and then dried up and then became a lake again several times as the Colorado River periodically changed course. And then going back to that idea of migration as a response to climate changes and environmental change, archaeologists have found evidence that the ancestors of today's Kumeyaay, Kokopah, and Kauia peoples built villages on the shores of those earlier lakes, off and on, migrating closer and farther away as water levels changed. Now, more recently, More water from the Colorado River is being diverted to coastal cities, and so 40% less is flowing into the Salton Sea. The waters are increasingly killing the fish and the migratory birds in the lake. And, as Elias pointed out, the dried-out lake bed is generating this toxic dust. People who live in the area suffer from unusually high rates of asthma. In the past year, there have been two really interesting developments. First, wetlands projects around the lake just received new state funding, and they're expected to help with both dust and pollution, and also provide jobs. And then Berkshire Hathaway Energy is beginning construction on a new geothermal energy plant that will produce renewable electricity while also extracting lithium, which is used in making car batteries from the water used in the plant. In combination, these two projects highlight three major aspects of climate change responses. Adaptation, mitigation, and then environmental justice. The Wetlands Project uses the natural ecosystem as a tool to address the unhealthy environment of the shrinking lake, so that's a type of adaptation. The energy plant is expected to decrease our need for fossil fuels, which means shrinking our greenhouse gas emissions. This is an example of mitigation. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, environmental justice has to do with fairness. I won't read you the whole definition from their website, but I will say this quote. Fair treatment means no group of people should bear a disproportionate share of the negative environmental consequences resulting from industrial, governmental, and commercial operations or policies. So if we think about that with reference to the Salton Sea, The pollution and the drying of the Salton Sea are the result of a bunch of different things, agricultural practices, regional water agreements, and of course, climate change. But the cost of each of those decisions, which were made by a lot of different people, are resting very heavily just on the people closest to the lake. So using state funding for the wetlands projects helps to repair this injustice. Of course, it remains to be seen whether the power and lithium extraction plant will cause new pollution in the area, but certainly local residents and scientists are going to be keeping an eye out. Despite uncertainty about how climate change is going to impact their lives, Angela and Elias are, of course, making plans for the future. When we spoke, Angela told me she wants
1: to be an interpreter. Like the instant ones, those... And my long, long-term goal is to be able to work at the UN as an interpreter.
0: Elias had his sights set on space.
2: But then I realized that you had to study something. There was no career called astronaut. <laughs> and so I decided to study aerospace engineering. So yeah, my plan is to like work at JPL for like three years and apply to be an astronaut. Um, and hopefully go to space.
0: Meanwhile... Elias explained to me how his family tries to conserve resources and think about the environment. Angela told me about doing beach cleanups with her mom and trying to figure out how to get their school to adopt recycling. When she spoke about responding to climate change, I had a feeling she was talking to herself just as much to her fellow teens.
1: Like, I like what other teenagers like. I'm a teenager as well, like, I can't deny it. But I do get sometimes, like, if you think about it for a while, you're like, wow, we're really, like centering ourselves so much in what's happening right now that we're not planning for our future. I'm not saying do something for other people if you don't want to, like do it for yourself. It's your earth. You live here too, you know? Thanks for
0: listening. If you want to learn more about how climate change will affect the inland deserts region, check out the resources at calglobaled.org on the Future Imperfect page you'll find a link to the state climate change assessment, plus lots of articles about each of the topics mentioned in this episode. Thanks to Nancy Freitas for her extensive guidance interpreting the science, and to Richard Duke, who composed and recorded the music. And if you visit the webpage, be sure to take a moment to look at the cover art by Sierra Claxton. Future Imperfect is a production of the California Global Education Project, without whose generous support this would not have been possible.